This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for February 25th, 2019. There's never so many lies told as before an election, during a war, or after a hunt. So what of someone who enthusiastically endorsed Donald Trump as soon as he became Republican candidate? I'll talk to one writer to see if he has shifted his opinion. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Coming up in a few minutes, do you think that the bulk of the money spent on Trump's tax cut went to ordinary Americans? You know, when you lower the tax of a corporation, uh-huh. then that corporation is has an interest in hiring people and spending money. And, or, or, and buying, have, or buying back their own shares. Well, you know, you, you've got a little bit of that that goes on too, but you've got, you know, you, you have to keep corporate tax rates low to keep the economy. That's coming up in a minute. But first, in the US, President Trump was reported recently as saying that EU countries must take back the estimated 800 ISIS fighters captured in Syria by US-backed forces and put them on trial. In the UK, Home Secretary Sajid Javid, the Minister in Charge of Internal Affairs, has announced that he is stripping Shamima Begum of her UK citizenship. Shamima Begum, in case you haven't been following, is the girl who, at the age of 15, ran away from home with two of her classmates and flew to Turkey, crossed the border into ISIS-controlled Syria and became the wives of Islamic State fighters. It seems that Begum's friend Khadiza Sultana was killed in an air raid and the fate of the third girl, Amira Abbasi, is not clear. There's been some debate in the UK about whether they are traitors or victims and whether it was right to remove her citizenship. She didn't do her case any favours when she gave an interview defending the bombing of the Ariana Grande concert in Manchester, which specifically targeted young girls, killing and maiming teenagers just like her. One objection to removing her citizenship is that it is only legal if it does not leave a person stateless. They must have a second nationality to revert to. That seems to disproportionately target immigrants. Sajid Javid said that because Begum's mother was born in Bangladesh, her mother is entitled to Bangladeshi citizenship, and therefore she is too, regardless of the fact that she has never been to Bangladesh and doesn't speak the language, not to mention the fact that the Bangladeshi government doesn't seem enthusiastic about having her dumped on them in the first place. The justification seems to me a bit thin, and it may yet be challenged in court, but to be honest, I don't think it's all that relevant. The real debate here is whether Begum is a victim or a villain. The difficult answer is that she's both. It's now clear that she and her friends were groomed online by IS agents, and at the time she was a child 15 years old. It seems clear that as well as manipulating them, the IS agents also devised much of their getaway plan. 
if, instead of an IS agent that was a paedophile encouraging her to sneak away from her parents to have sex, she would be considered the victim. She's grown up since then, she's 19 now, but she's lived the last four years entirely at the mercy of IS fighters. She's had three children, the most recent in the last few days. Only the youngest survives. She has literally been through the wars. It would be surprising if she didn't experience Stockholm Syndrome, where, like Patty Hearst, she comes to identify with the people on whom her life depends. I'm not a psychologist, but I can easily imagine one writing an opinion that she can't reasonably be held criminally responsible for her actions. And in any case, there isn't any evidence that she has committed a crime. She married an IS fighter, but there's no evidence that she took part in any violence herself. But having said all that, my stomach turns to hear her whataboutism and apologetics, defending the actions of bombers who packed their explosives with nails to rip through the bodies of teenage girls like herself. Sajid Javid is clearly right that it would hand a major propaganda coup to what's left of IS to allow her to waltz home and become some sort of jihadi celebrity with no more consequences than if she'd skipped school to play video games. But, and I know that it'll stick in the throat of many, on this issue, Donald Trump got it right. Even if most of the fighters are captured by the Kurds or other forces in Iraq and Syria, leaving the people who made up the society of IS wandering around is likely to further destabilise an already very unstable region. It's unlikely that there exists the capacity to imprison all of the fighters securely, and quite apart from the fact that executing prisoners is a war crime, it would certainly further convulse and destabilise the region. The solution is not easy to describe in a soundbite, but basically it makes sense for each country to take responsibility for their own fighters. For the hardcore fighters, That means throw the book at them, lock them up for as long as their crimes justify. There might be some knuckleheads who left the West with stars in their eyes and changed their minds as soon as they saw the reality of IS. They might deserve shorter sentences, but they certainly shouldn't be released without detailed psychological screening to determine if they pose any ongoing threat. And there are likely to be people who, in the spectrum between victim and villain, are closer to being a victim but still have sympathy for IS. Here we have to use the carrot and stick. Accept reintegration into society, cooperate with investigators, don't associate with extremists, don't give any media interviews or support IS in any other way, and you'll be allowed to come home. It's an approach that invites attack from tabloid newspapers and right-wing radio hosts. But if there's a method that is better at protecting us from terrorism, I've yet to hear it. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think.
On the line now, I have Scott Moorfield. Scott is a reporter for The Daily Caller. He's a columnist for Town Hall, and his writing is also featured on Breitbart, on BizPack, on The Blaze, The National Review, The Federalist, and others. Scott, you write for mostly right-leaning websites and uh, news outlets, and I've got in front of me a column that you wrote for Breitbart and the heading on that is why populism is replacing conservatism and why it's winning. I know that most columnists hate to have the history of their columns thrown back in their face. Uh, It might be a little bit unfair, but I want to talk to you about Trump. And maybe my first question is, are you as enthusiastic now about Donald Trump as you were about candidate Trump in the middle of 2016? Absolutely. Um, I, I think he's, I mean, we knew that he was not going to be able to push a button and do everything that he said he was going to do because we have three branches of government with three different roles, and we knew that the left was going to fight him every step of the way. So, mm-hmm. But as far as what he's been able to accomplish, and, and, you know, the feedback I got, especially back then when I wrote that column, was, oh, Trump's not going to govern as a conservative. He's going to govern as a liberal. And he's not really a conservative. He's just a fake conservative and all these things. And none of that has come to pass. I mean, everything Trump's tried to do has been what, you know, what conservatives would typically want done. And so, you know, I I know people like um, Ann Coulter have really come at him hard for... She's been sounding disappointed recently. She has. And it's sad because, I mean, I, I do enjoy reading Ann Coulter, but, you know, he he can't push a button and build the wall. Mm -hmm. As soon as he tries to call a national emergency and do it that way, then a judge is going to say, no, we can't do that. Mm -hmm. So he has to work within the parameters of the law. Well, we'll see about that. Perhaps Mr. Mueller might have something to say about that, but we'll leave that issue aside for the moment. And what I'm really interested in about that column that you wrote is that you distinguished between populists like Trump and conservatives and came down very much on the side of the populists. Are you sure that Trump has done that? In particular, you were saying that essentially the Republican and Democratic elite were serving themselves with policies, not so much serving ordinary middle-class Americans. And just looking at Trump's cabinet, Trump's cabinet is worth about four and a half billion dollars in the sense that that's what the members are worth. Are they really the people who are sticking up for the little guy? Well, you know, based on policies, based on what they want to get done and what they're trying to get done, I would argue yes. I mean, somebody can, just because somebody is maybe don't have as much money. I mean, Ocasio-Cortez, you know, she doesn't have much money right now. Mm -hmm. But I would argue that, you know, in some ways she's a little bit of a populist in some ways. Mm -hmm. But then she's espousing economic policies that are going to hurt a majority of Americans if they're implemented. So, you know, back when I was arguing for for a populist conservative to Mm -hmm. uh, actually uh, have a shot at winning, back back then – you know, somebody, a Republican, really, on the electoral map, a Republican really does not have a chance to win unless they can harness the blue-collar, middle-class American worker. 
Mm-hmm. And the only way to do that is their spouse policies. Well, so well, a- easy, easy plus, easy plus percent of Americans identify as middle class. So clearly, if you're not getting that vote, you're not going anywhere. Exactly, and you know the 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 fact that Trump turned, and this is something I said back then before the election, Trump has a shot to turn the Rust Belt, and he turned Michigan, he turned Wisconsin, and he turned Pennsylvania. Uh, he mm-hmm. barely turned them. But he turned them, mm-hmm. and those states hadn't voted Republican in decades. So the only, you know, d- does anybody anybody that follows politics left or right knows that Ted Cruz, and I'm a I'm a fan of Ted Cruz, mm-hmm. but Ted Cruz was not going to win Michigan. Yeah, you know, uh, no you're absolutely Ted- right. No, no, I agree with you completely in the way that Donald Trump, as you say, turned those Rust Belt states that he appealed to that blue collar not even necessarily middle class but maybe even lower middle class or the lower end of the middle class that vote but then he put people like Betsy DeVos in a secretary of education Betsy DeVos is a billionaire personally she comes from an unbelievably wealthy family the company that has made her most of her money is Amway an incredibly exploitative company that really you know, exploits people who are not rich. And I, I, I don't want to go into, you know, a critique of multi-level marketing and so forth, but it's certainly sure. that's not something that's friendly to blue-collar workers. And her policy, uh, her her signature policy, is essentially to take money out of the schools that most of those blue-collar workers send their kids to. You're, you're saying uh, school choice. <clears throat> I'm talking about um, ending uh, maybe some form of school choice. Is that what you're referring to? Well, well, essentially, Margaret. the effect of that policy is that ordinary working families who really have not much choice other than to send their kids to the local school don't have a choice of topping up vouchers with their own money and and, uh, letting kids go across town to a fancier school. That might help, you know, quite a lot of people, but it's not going to help ordinary working Americans. There's no question about that. But, but, I mean, deal with the, the central point. She's a billionaire who has no idea what it's like to be wondering, will you have enough money to make it to the end of the month? Yeah, I mean, there's certain there's some people in the cabinet, and of course we can go the the whole school choice thing. I, I have mixed feelings about that, you know. Because yeah, I, I don't want to get into that exactly, but but deal yeah, with the issue yeah. that that the people he has appointed to his right. cabinet are exactly yeah. the reverse of what you are advocating of. They are the elite of the elite. They're the richest Americans, and they seem to right. be making d- decisions on behalf of the richest Americans. I don't, I don't, I don't agree with the last part of it. Now, I agree. You know, some of the people in the cabinet, a lot of the people in the cabinet are um, rich on mm-hmm. paper. So you've got, you know, Mnuchin and and Wilbur Ross, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, he's had his own share of controversy. Um, Rex Tillerson, but Ben far, Carson. Yeah, some of these folks are what you would call, you know, you you you're going to want to appoint people who've been successful in their own right. And I don't have a problem with that per se. I don't have a problem with electing, or you know, we we elected Trump, who's a billion, a multi-billionaire. So you know, personally, if they do well, personally, that's fine. But do they? Is their policies good for the majority of Americans? And I would argue yes, in most cases. You know, not in every case, but I would argue that their policies are, 
you know, you could turn around and say, well, how many people did Obama appoint that were rich? And, and he appointed a lot, too. So, you know, people who are successful are going to tend to rise to these positions, but mm-hmm. do their policy help the majority of Americans? And I would argue that, you know, conservative policies, you know, particularly tax policy, um, and then, of course, you, you, you know, do, in that do, article, do you think Do you think that the bulk of the money spent on Trump's tax cut went to ordinary Americans? I would say that, you know, when you lower the tax of a corporation, uh-huh. then that corporation is has an interest in hiring people and spending money, and, or or and, buying uh, or buying back their own shares. Well, you know, you, you've got a little bit of that that goes on too, but you've got, you know, you you have to keep corporate tax rates low to keep the economy moving. Um, and so I would argue that, you know, I, now what I'd like to see, and, my, and, and conservatives may disagree with that, but, mm-hmm. you know, I don't like the idea of a hedge fund manager only getting to pay 10 or 20 percent. You know, that's mm-hmm. not fair. So, you know, I, I totally, I, I, if, you know, a left, a left-wing person may say that, and I would say amen. I mean, I, I, I do believe in a lot of the populist principles, and I don't think everything the Trump administration has done has aligned with those principles, but I think most of them have. But um, the great, the you know, great and, bulk of that, the co- if you look at reducing the tax as a cost to the federal government, the great bulk of that cost has been spent on reducing taxes on very wealthy people. Um, when you decrease taxes, then in general, you of course this is this goes back to the whole supply side. You know, economic. But when you decrease mm. taxes, you increase economic activity. Uh, uh, but that, yeah, that but you, that, 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 oh, not, not all tax, incre- not all tax cuts are equal. If you, you know, we had uh, other speakers on this podcast pointing out that most Americans, you know, the median American is uh, American income is very low. A huge proportion of Americans couldn't deal with an unexpected cost of four or five hundred dollars. If you concentrate, if a tax cut is to be made, surely concentrating it on those people who would go out and buy stuff with that because they are, you know, like living really at exactly on the margin of their income, rather than people who are already millionaires and billionaires and might just throw it into their 401k or might just spend the money on other not so productive things. And from well, pure well, justice, I'd, that it, surely it should have been concentrated yeah. on the lower end of the scale. Well, it was. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm I'm a middle class American, and you know, I got a tax cut. You know, everybody got a tax cut. It's just that when you do it based on a percentage, then maybe if somebody is richer and they get a one percent tax cut, it's going to manifest itself in a bigger dollar amount because just simply because they make more money. I, but know? it's it's not beyond um, it's not beyond the wit of humanity to design a tax cut where the bulk of the money goes to people who will yeah. pretty much immediately spend it on things that will stimulate the economy. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I'm, you know, I don't, um, if I if I thought that, you know, this tax cut wasn't perfect. Uh, if you're talking, you know, you're talking about the last one that they passed. I mean, it mm-hmm. definitely was not perfect. Um, but, and I do agree with you that the majority of it should go to the, you know, lower in the middle class. So I'm with you on all but, that but stuff. But r- r- riddle me this, Scott. Riddle me this, Scott. If the cabinet is packed with billionaires and the tax cut just happens to be a bonanza for billionaires, those two things could be a coincidence, no, but they're probably not. Mm, 
I wouldn't call it that. I, I, I think that um, I, I think that uh, the majority of the tax cut went to ordinary Americans. It's just that they they take they took aim at the at the corporate tax cut. But I don't have a problem with the corporate tax cut because if an individual that owns that corporation takes that money, they're not going to pay the corporate tax. You know, if they if they take that money out in in um, earnings or whatever, they're going to pay the personal rate. So a corporate tax cut just allows that corporation to do more things. Um, and so, you know, I don't have a problem with keeping corporate tax cut low, and that's in general, you know, most economic economists consider, you know, keeping corporate taxes low mm-hmm. a good policy. You know, so I don't have a problem with that. The, let's park that for a moment, and I want to go to a quote from uh, H.L. Mencken, and he said, for every complex problem, there is an answer that's clear, simple, and wrong. And you mentioned in your article two things about about immigration and about trade protectionism. And you said that these two things, on these two things, Trump was essentially protecting American jobs. And the one thing I fear about somebody who I think has as short an attention span as Donald Trump is that he will be seduced by answers that are short and simple and easy to understand and wrong. And immigration into the US is very complex. It has very complex impacts on the economy. And I'm wondering whether he is someone who will weigh all of those things rather than just trying to appeal to the populist vote and make Ann Coulter like him again. <laughs> I think Ann Coulter and Trump are done. <laughs> I think he's. Um, I, I I think that I think that deep down I really do think that deep down, you know, Trump, even though he's got a clumsy way about him and he is, you know, he he gets uh, frustrated and he tweets and all these things and mm. and uh, you know he's thin skinned. I mean, there's certain things about him that we can all say, come on, you know, I get that, but I do think. You know, and I think most of his voters think deep down he does want what's best for the country. I do believe that, and and I think that sure, uh, yeah, and, and I'm sure there are thousands of people. I could go into any bar tonight and meet someone who wants who who is drooling over their fourth beer and staggering with difficulty towards the restroom when they need to do that, and I could meet uh, any number of people like that, who wants what's best for their country. I'm not going to put their butt, their finger on the nuclear button, though, and I'm not going to put them in charge of any other important policies. That's not enough, is it? They, you have to have a level of attention and a level of understanding of detail, don't you? Yeah, and, and you know, I, I think that the way the media portrays him is not who he really is. You know, I, I think that we get a picture of him of chaos and and insanity that is not the reality you know i i think that the stuff i think that what comes out of the, what comes out of his policies and what comes out of you know the everyday actions that they're that he's trying to do mm-hmm. and you know, if he can accomplish if he's able to accomplish what he says he's going to be able to do which you know this wall thing it's been very difficult mm-hmm. to get any sort of compromise on that but mm-hmm. You know, if he's able to increase border security, then, you know, we're going to 
our country is going to be better off in the long run if we're able to control the immigration, you know, let people into work, you know, so that we know who they are. That's fine. Yeah, I, look, but, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm all for regularizing this. I think that illegal immigration is chaotic and creates a whole load of problems. And by the way, I think that a lot of people that own, for example, businesses that employ large numbers of minimum wage workers, they're not nearly so much against illegal immigration as a lot of people because it suits them very well. And Eric Schlosser wrote um, a book, uh, something called, uh, I think the name is Strawberry Fields Forever. And he wrote very clearly about how large farming companies in California wanted immigration to be a very precise level of illegal because if they had, if it was too illegal and people couldn't get in, they couldn't get any cheap labor for people picking the strawberries. And if it was right. too legal, those people might start asserting their rights and, and demanding yeah. minimum wage and so forth. They wanted the immigration to be a very precise level of illegal. That's kind of true for maybe some of Trump's uh, hotels and so forth. Are you confident? <laughs> are you confident that the way in which the tax cut seemed to be cut for billionaires, are you confident that uh, immigration policy, that won't happen with that? I'm, uh, I think that there is an axis of evil with big businesses. You know, you, on one hand, you've got the big businesses that want um, cheap immigration, you know, mm -hmm. cheap labor, right? Uh, so would you, would you accept, would you accept the point that they want it to be a very precise level of illegal? That's probably true. Uh, I would say that a lot of big businesses are like that. You know, a lot of big businesses want that. The Chamber of Commerce wants that, you know, club mm -hmm. for growth, all these things. So you've got that on one end. And then you've got Democrats on the other end who want voters. That's what they want. I write about this on Town Hall a lot. You know, they, Is that they true? I mean, it's a, it's a great, yeah, it's a great line. I mean, it's a great, you know, sort of throwaway line. Is there a shred of evidence in it? You know, um, they talk, look at the term uh, permanent democratic majority, you know, and they kind of, you'll see them in, in the back, you know, the, the, you'll see, you know, people like, I know Van Jones used that term, you know, before, but. Yeah, uh, loads of people have used know, the term, but this, just because the term exists doesn't make it a real thing. Well, um, there isn't a shred of evidence that voting well, by illegal immigrants has 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 flipped a, like so much as a, a local dog catcher election oh you're saying uh, yeah but what what the uh, what the democrats want or what liberals want the reason they don't want a wall is uh, there's no other reason why they wouldn't want a wall than than for them to want as many illegals as possible here and the reason that they want that is because they know that they're going to have kids and they're going to have kids even if they're not citizens now and not to you know, I think there are some, you know, you got some voter fraud that's going on, but that's that's not not a whole ton, but you've got some. Scott, then, Scott, Scott, you know, Scott, one, Scott, 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 put your hand in your heart. Do you believe that so much as a single county dog catcher election has been flipped by illegal immigrants voting illegally? Um, probably not. Okay. Um, probably not. But you know, at the same time. When you shift numbers, if you read about even Texas, you know, and there's people that project, and even the, even in 20, but by 2024, Texas is going blue, and the reason it's going blue is because of immigration. So, you know, Democrats know that they need influxes of 
immigration to, to uh, constantly be coming into the country, constantly being made legal. Uh, you know, they eventually become citizens or their kids become citizens. Mm-hmm. And those people, by and large, vote Democrat, and they know that. And I'm not saying we shouldn't try to win them as conservatives. Uh, I would love to win them as many as we can. Mm-hmm. But even George Bush, as, as, as uh, you know, George Bush tried – and he only got close to what forty percent of the Hispanic population to vote for him. Mm-hmm. So it's a very, you know, for conservatives, it, it kind of creates a quandary because, and it's not just it's because I, I think it's because they come from. Yeah, but but hold on, know, hold on a second, Scott. Hispanic hold on a second, Scott. I presume you don't object to Native Americans, long-standing citizens, mostly white citizens, having kids. Young people sure. are voting Democratic over Republican at an enormous rate. Are you saying that's a conspiracy against Republicans as well? No, but I think, and I think that's something we've got to work on, you know, but uh, because, yeah, but, you know, they they, they go through, a lot of people go through. Yeah, but hold on a second. The same thing applies to what you're saying about uh, about potential immigrants, be they legal or illegal, their children being citizens, and, and perhaps well, at a minimum, 20 years after they immigrate, voting and supposedly unfairly skewing an election. That's that's really a bit of a stretch, isn't it? Well, demographically, if you you bring in somebody from a a country that leans... Now, Cuba is an exception because Cuba was communist, and the people that left there hated communism. So Mm -hmm. then you've got the Cuban population who vote conservative, which is Mm -hmm. kind of the other side of it. Um, so I, let's put it this way: if if the people coming from Honduras and Mexico and Guatemala, if those people voted majority Republican, I guarantee you that the Democrats would be building the wall. Put it that way. Um, let, let's 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 move on from that. I want to I want to just try one, on one other topic because I'm enjoying my chat with you, Scott, and you you're a, yeah, a good yeah. sport with this. Um, but you mentioned. Also, in your article, and this um, I should remind listeners, this was written um, maybe about a month or so after Ted Cruz withdrew, so it was obvious that Donald Trump was going to be the candidate, but it was long before he became president. You mentioned how you supported his trade policy. Are you still with him on that? Yes, uh, I think he's done a great job on trade. Um, it's it's tough getting this stuff through, and and uh, you know even just bringing a I know it's it's not perfect, it's all messy, you know. Mm-hmm. But even just making it a making it something that's, that we're talking about, you know, for the first time we got somebody in there who's saying, hey, let's have fair trade, let's have fair trade. If you're going to put a tariff on on us. We're going to put a tariff on you, so let's negotiate. Pause and, that thing. You pause that. And you were saying this in in the context of China. Pause that for a second. The value that the U.S. gets out of that product chain, let's say the iPhone is the most famous one, the value that the U.S. gets out of it compared to the value that China gets out of it is just not comparable. Sure, yeah, there's some people in China there who might have been scraping a living out of it the dirt in, in a farm in the somewhere in the far west of China and they've moved to um, Shenzhen province or whatever and they've gotten a job in a in a Foxconn factory for a couple of hundred dollars a month in wages or maybe less. They work incredibly hard hours, hard for very long hours. You, are you seriously saying those are the sort of jobs that should be brought back to the US? There's nothing wrong, you know, with trade. I don't have a problem with um, you know, if, if a country, but, but you're saying that it's skewed, uh, that 
pre-Trump. Yeah. It was skewed in the favor of China against the U.S., all of the have. design jobs, all of the computer, the um, programming jobs, all of the architecture design of the iPhone, pretty much making the apps and so forth, are jobs in the US. They're very high wage, high uh, skill jobs. And the actual gluing the uh, the components together done in a factory that most people in the US would, would recoil from the, the working conditions there. You know, how much better can it get for the US? I think in general, what we've seen is a manufacturing uh, until, which I think we're, it's going to, it's starting to come back. But I think what we've seen is the, a tendency towards shipping our manufacturing overseas, no matter what it is. Now, there, it's fine. Some things are fine, you know. Mm -hmm. If it makes sense to, to do it, I'm not saying everything has to be made here and we can't have trade with other countries. That's not what anybody's saying. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you've got, that's why the Roosevelt voted for Trump, because they're seeing all these factories leaving the country because can I give I, you can I give you a, a, a suggest a reason, Scott, why the Roast Belt voted for Trump? Because they were wrong. Because what's killing Rust Belt jobs is essentially automation. I, I think that, that that is a factor. You know, automation. You know, the more you automate. Um, you know, we, we can't make wagon wheels forever, right? I mean, there are certain, you know, there's certain things that are going to be obsolete, and there's certain things that automation is going to is going to change. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if when you see countries purposely, you know, take a factory out of our country and put mm -hmm. it somewhere else just to get the cheap labor, mm -hmm. that's a problem to me, and it's a problem to a lot of Americans. And you know, we can pay. Most people would say, okay, if we pay a little bit more for a product, but an American is making a living wage from it, then we're willing to do that. Now, there's a line to it, um, and as long as the trade is fair, then the economic system can work itself out. So if, 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 the, if the tariffs are even across the board or there's no tariffs, period, mm -hmm. and it's even across the board, then it, you're going to have trade and you're going to have jobs ending because of automation and you're going to have all these things. But when it's, yeah, but, when no, but it's hold on. Focus, focus on that specifically. Rust Belt jobs, the typical blue-collar Rust Belt jobs, the type of people who voted for Trump and the type of people not only who voted for Trump but flipped from perhaps voting from Obama to voting for Trump, those type of jobs, they're not going to any country. They're going to different technology. Well, I would argue that it's a little bit of both. I mean, you've got... You have situations where they announce, or, or, or different, you know, companies have announced um, that, that hey, we're we're moving here, we're moving there, and this many people losing their jobs. And then, you know, we've had some announcements where they're opening up manufacturing here, mm -hmm. and in some cases, that's because of the policy that we've implemented. So, you know, if you keep taxes low and you uh, make it to where you don't get an advantage for moving your factory overseas, you know, why should we give? an American company, a tax advantage, you know, they can move their factory to China and not have to pay taxes. How is that fair? That's not fair to anybody. You know, so all that stuff that you said, that's fine. You're mixing up two things. The A, move their factory to China, and B, don't have to pay taxes. Th that bit wasn't in dispute. And Trump doesn't seem to be doing very much about that at all. In fact, quite the reverse. You mean uh, outsourcing? Uh, well, yeah, not so much. No, no, so I mean, I mean, I mean uh, the taxation, and as you said, um, corporate taxation cuts. The 
corporations in the US are paying far, far less tax now than they were, for example, in the Reagan era. Yeah, I don't like I said, you know, at the beginning when we were talking, I'm I'm okay with corporations having reasonably low tax rates. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, nominal 15, 20%, whatever. But it needs to be that way across the board. If you've got a factory in China, you know, and you bring your stuff in, then you need to pay that. And I'm not an expert in this stuff, but but uh, in general, it needs sure, to be. Yeah, across but the people the board. who have the factory in China, and it's outsourced, of course, but they, they, they effectively own that is our Apple, and that's, that's true for, you know, electronics and products manufactured across the board there. And Apple are allowed by U.S. laws to do very clever shifting money around from different tax havens to make sure that they pay basically no tax on anything at all. Wouldn't it make an awful lot more sense to, to, uh, and this is not something that, uh, uh, a drum that Donald Trump is beating, and it certainly doesn't seem like the billionaires in his cabinet are terribly enthusiastic about it, of saying that we're going to close those loopholes. Yeah, and I agree with you. I agree. They should be. They should be talking about that, and they should be closing those loopholes. So, you know, like I said, nothing. You know, nobody's perfect. <laughs> so, I, I would agree with you on that, Scott. Scott, I want to close on one quote that that comes from a left wing source, and I want you to comment on it. And the, the the quote is that the genius of the rich is that they can keep the nearly poor busy attacking the really poor, and when Donald Trump is riling up people, you know, people who are not very rich, people who are, you know, clearly they they work for every dime they have. When Donald Trump has them busy, hysterical about caravans and about immigrants, they're not paying much attention to who's pocketing the billions, are they? Well, I I don't think that he's saying that for that reason. Um, You know, I think he's saying it for a different reason. I think that I think that he's bringing up an issue that really is an issue that's got to be dealt with. You know, we and I don't know how because we've got instability. In okay. the, well, in it would be America. worth noting. It would be worth noting that, metaphorically speaking, at least uh, the wall might prevent people uh, might be increasing uh, the number of illegal immigrants because the number of illegal immigrants in the U.S. has been going down for the um, past decade, at least. That's uh, people I'm have not been sure going I'll home. Yeah, I'm not sure that I believe those numbers. I don't know that there's any 100% way to know um, that that's the case. I think that that 12 million they spelled out is way wrong. I think it's closer to at least 20 million, if not more. Um, but uh, but you know, that- deal deal with the point that it's a neat trick for the super rich to keep the the nearly poor busy fighting the really poor. So you're saying that the poor Americans to be frustrated about immigration. While the rich, um, you know, pocket all the the uh, the proverbial goods, so yeah. to speak. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's a it's a nice piece of rhetoric. Um, I don't think it's. I do not think that that's what is taking place here at all. Um, I, I think that uh, if they had, you know, there's no reason for. If they just wanted to keep pocketing the wealth, they could do what Obama was doing and all and his administration were doing, and just let them in, and they'd be even richer. You know, if if uh, if corporate America wants cheap illegal immigrant labor, then you know you can keep going with the axis between politicians and corporations and bringing them in. The rich Republicans who want immigration, so everybody wants illegal 
third world immigration except the middle class American worker who is harmed by it. So if Trump wanted to do that, he wouldn't be espousing policies that actually help the middle class American worker, which these policies do. You know, if you can if you can do if you can cut immigration and uh yeah, it's fine to have some and and make it merit based. You know, if we need that worker, we need nurses. Let's find some nurses and bring them in. Scott Moorfield, a reporter with the Daily Caller, columnist with Townhall.com, prolific writer, thank you very much for talking to me. You bet. You bet it was a pleasure, William. Thank you. Have you read a blog post or an opinion piece that you think is really right or really wrong? Tell us why. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com and let's discuss it on the next show. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at ChallengingO on Twitter and follow Scott Moorfield at SK Moorfield and get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or topic for a future show. And thanks to everyone who's signed up as patrons on Patreon so far. I really appreciate that. It means that I can devote more time to research and finding interesting guests. And if you could do the same as them and donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, you'll find the link on the website. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming up next Monday, that's March 4th, I'll be talking to Michael Tanner of the Cato Institute, who has interesting ideas on how to help the poor, really. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. The assistant producer is Nick Albertson. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>